recording, we were talking about New Zealand's tech resiliency. Because uh, I thought I thought we were quite innovative. I thought we we had our stuff together uh, in terms of our tech capability. What's your what's your take on that? Yeah, I think there's a lot of capability and a lot of good ideas coming out of New Zealand. But what you got to understand about technology is it's one thing to have the idea, and then it's another thing to build it, and it's a completely another thing to build it where it's scalable without losing a whole lot of work that you've done as an MVP or something like that. Mm. So there's a lot of businesses at an idea stage that could do a lot better with overseas sort of VC models where you go to a tech day and, you know, there's people walking around with decent sized checks without asking all the nth degree of, um, I guess, financials and things like that. You know, <clears throat> being a startup and they ask you for a three-year financial forecast, it's, it's a joke in itself that they ask you for it because if we can guess that three years out, mm. um, yeah, we probably wouldn't need investment. But um, it's copy. Can you just copy and paste one of those hockey stick? Yeah, grabs? exactly. As long as it's going in the right direction, you should be all good. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely good ideas. There's good talent. And I guess talent's something that I need to tiptoe around the topic. But, but Don't do just, that. Go, <laughs> go over it. Um, so, like most things, it comes down to experience. And if you break it down and have a look at how many big tech projects have been built in New Zealand, it gives us a pretty good idea of what the real sort of skills are at a high level of building products. We do have people who've gone overseas and come back and they bring back that experience with them. Um, but then they come at the upper end of the pay scale as well, which puts the total project cost at a, at a new level as well. Mm. So there is um, more thinking to be done when we're talking about going offshore than just, you know, jobs leaving New Zealand. It's actually the capability sits there. It's like Ontario. If the capability for us sits in dairy, why would someone take it back because they just want to do it locally. Just doing it locally doesn't add up. Um, so the experience that comes with it, the understandings that come with it, being, you know, building the product and then being able to scale it, those are all things that you develop it through experience. And we've got to make sure, and we've got to understand we don't have a lot of those big projects starting from day one going all the way up. Um, you mentioned before, like, the really big project, big scalable projects that have been uh, kind of seeded from here. How many, how many are there, do you know? What, can you give us some examples? Um, Imagine zero. Yep, so zero is probably one of the biggest ones, ones that has happened out there, and they've absolutely done amazing things globally. Um, and to be honest, there aren't too many that I can think of that's of oh, Vend as well. So mm. Vend's um, done a really good job of not only, you know, making that running a retail front or online store a lot easier, but they've added some smarts behind it as well. Mm -hmm. um, so that, you know, you can manage your suppliers and your customers and all that, which are all important things. But you'd be surprised even with something like Venn, which is local and has developed a very good solution for it, how many stores that absolutely need it hasn't even considered it mm -hmm. until not so long ago. Um, the problem with starting at that point is, you're trying to invest in a business that potentially hasn't done anything for six weeks. So what are you going to do? Are you going to try and get online? Are you going to get back into business and build that money up or how it goes? Because the, the monthly fees are one thing, but there's also, you know, changing the business operations, training people to do it, um, being able to make sure you make the most of that software by being online and all of that. Um, so I would say Vend and Zero are two very good sort of examples of it. Mm. Um, but, um, yeah, I know that development sits all over the world for those two companies as well. It's to do with being overseas as well, um, but it, it does require going overseas. So there was recently another 
uh, essentially a competition to uh, vendors well. So they got to a very basic point in New Zealand, got an investment out of um, the States for a company that runs a lot of retail operations. That's how they grew. So <clears throat> the, there aren't a huge amount we can sort of call off myself, um, but I guess from my side of the business, what we've seen is a whole lot of businesses that know what they want, we put it out there, and the number of times it's come back to us, yeah, I can see exactly why I need that, but I don't think I can afford that right now. And um, and we're not talking about mobile apps, it's just basic um, you know, ERP systems and, and how the business is efficient and does the basics right. And if you don't do those basics right, it's hard to get suppliers sort of really on board with you as well. I know we're going to get to uh, what you're about and how you fit into, but just the scenario that you're talking about, where there's just not the funding, there's not the kind of the capability to build scalable tech uh, from scratch here. What do we need to change in that scenario? What do we need to change in that landscape? Um, look, we definitely have the talent to build scalable platforms, but they, their cost that they bring to the project makes the project somewhat um, unachievable for a lot of startups. So um, at the early, early stages, if you're looking at um, one developer, you're looking into the six figures of salary. Like that's the first developer you hire, that would be sort of medium experience. Um, that's, that's a big sort of outlay. <clears throat> and development is very much like the, um, it takes a village to raise a child. It's not one developer with an incredible skill set that can build it because there's different sort of skill sets that come into different parts of the project um, from the start to the middle to the end to the testing. That's what creates the, um, that's what creates an MVP that you have to start fresh once you get an um, investment versus a scalable product that you can start adding to straight away. Mm. So, you know, having a team of four or five, that's, you know, you're looking at a big chunk of change or hoping people look purely for equity, which isn't necessarily a fair outcome because, how do you value a startup? So, you know, how do you put a hundred grand check next to a value of a startup? Do they have enough money to get from development to the next stage? Those are all things that aren't necessarily easy to see. So, um, yeah, it's not that we don't have it, it's just the number of experience we have makes it very, very hard to achieve. Um, yeah, that's what I think. Mm. So how do you come into that? How do you come into the, the equation? Yeah, so um, we're, we, we, we call virtual capital because we in the intention that we essentially offer capital by way of um, supporting early stage businesses build their technology at a lower cost. Mm. Um, so this came about because I just came from a failed project as did my business partner. And uh, my failed project was around funding tech startups. And where we had was ideas come into the fray, but you know it's very hard to fund an idea that needs $300,000 worth of development work. So um, especially, and it was in the crowdfunding space, so especially with mom and dad investors, they're not necessarily in touch, well, very schooled up on all the technology. So to say I have an idea and get funding is very difficult. Um, on the flip side of that, um, my business partner now, he was working on, um, he was working on a, actually a marketplace that was essentially the equivalent of um, a online department store. So it will be as when you go into a brand, it's got the brand's feelings and, Essentially, six months ago, so four years after we got together, six years, uh, six months ago, one of New Zealand's biggest retail companies just came out and said they spent twelve million dollars to build exactly what he tried to launch four years ago, but we couldn't get a meeting because he's he's just a startup and the small guys didn't want to be there till the big guys were there and the big guys wouldn't take a call, so it was hard to launch. So that was an example of how it's hard to get going at, at the start. Um, so what we did was we had some resources in Sri Lanka for developing 
um, project. So we had four of them at start and um, what we did was we got our first client who essentially wanted to build a, a price aggregator and the price she had out of Australia was around $60,000 just to build the aggregator. Which, and when you said, well, how much money do you have in the bank? She had 70. So, um, you know, and the problem with an aggregator is you've got to run it for so long before you actually have the volume to actually charge money for advertising on there as well. So we sort of flipped the business model on her and said, we'll build it for a fraction of that price. We'll um, negotiate some equity in the business and we'll lease that, um, that platform to you over the next five, 10 years until your company's got revenue. So in 10 years, if the business still exists, that percentage we took in the business is worth something. So they can pay it off or if it gets to a point of sale, we'll write it over to them. It was essentially got them the technology to start operating, but not only as an aggregator, but an actual trading platform. So they could sell from day one and start making money. Mm. Um, so what we got from that was essentially a model where we can reduce the development costs, but also maintain a team. So it's not just one person that comes in and um, mm. you know, builds it. Um, and so we've kind of evolved from there. We've got, Two of our biggest projects have come from um, essentially businesses that hired someone, failed, hired someone again, and then said, I need to hire a team. Mm -hmm. So they're not necessarily businesses that haven't actually got the revenue available either. It's just very hard to do with one person and to actually build that model the way you want it. Um, so, yeah, that's that's where we came to the equation is we do take it offshore, but um, so we have a team in Sri Lanka that do the back-end work and we have a team in New Zealand that looks after the account management and relationship management. And, um, but at the same time, you know, we're building projects for ourselves as well. So we're launching products in New Zealand through platforms that we are building. Um, and we, we take that savings and it's literally there to a point where once the startup gets to a point where they can afford to have all these functions, then we can move that back into the New Zealand team. It's not to keep everything out forever. Mm. Um, but at the same time, I think, it'll be revisited more now in terms of, you know, how do we maintain these uh, platforms and all that? And, and the cost efficiencies do have to come into it. And, um, you know, globally, they do have to look at markets that don't exist in their, in their markets. So they just got to adjust the businesses to be able to operate like that as well, because you mm. do have the best value out of your business. How do you, you mentioned before that it's very hard to go in and price a startup for equity. You're kind of doing that. Uh, how does how does that work? How do you do that? Um, that's a part that takes the longest, to be honest. Um, we go back and forth, and there's one there's a couple of things we have in, in our in our thing is we never want to tell a, a, a founder that they're right, wrong. I have a bad idea because we don't have nearly enough experience to understand it. And what we found is, you know, a really good business model with bad management can fall over tomorrow, mm. and uh, a really good set of managers can make something sort of come out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. um, so when it comes to the equity piece, um, we, we yeah, go back and forth for a long time. Um, we don't necessarily start right at the bottom, but then you get to a point where you're arguing over 0.5% or 1% and at which point you say, all right, let's just, let's just get started. Um, some of the things we do to sort of increase that is we look at support that we can do afterwards as well, so maintenance and ongoing costs. So we have a plan in there. If we get to this stage and you're doing this, we can um, reduce this cost here so that we actually continue to invest in it and then we have uh, additional value we add to the, add to the equity. Now, I don't want to go too much on a tangent, but it's quite interesting. How do you, um, you know, when you're looking at the team and the idea, is there a certain weighting that you, you'll give to each? Is it all about the team or is it all about the idea? 
Um, actually, the first thing we look at is the addressable market the problem's trying to solve. So um, is it going to, how big is the problem we're trying to solve in New Zealand? Mm. And how big is the opportunity globally? And almost all of them, the first thing we like to see the most is there's, there's the want to reach globally. Um, because it's very hard to sustain a, a startup business just in, with the New Zealand market. So that's, that's really important. And then it, then it comes down to more than just aspirations. Do you have a plan and a sort of financial goals you need to get to? What happens when you get this point and you need this much more money? It's how far they've thought through the, you know, the real process of 10 years. You know, if we're going to be a unicorn in 10 years' time, here's everything we need to do. Mm. Um, so the more understanding they have of that, um, we definitely pay, pay a lot of attention to. Um, and then the second part is understanding of the industry they're trying to disrupt. So um, usually it is someone who's been in the industry for a while or family industry in the while, and they've seen a hole for a long time and, you know, they're really trying to fix it up. Um, as opposed to, you know, when there's a whole lot of new businesses jumping into the same thing, they want to do the same thing as well. It, it gets very, very complicated. So um, we, we incline to decline equity if we can't see a clear line to you know, even taking the existing business in New Zealand, but we will still work on them with them at reduced rates to be able to put the product to them. Mm. Um, but yeah, so somewhere between the founders' experience and, and where they're trying to go, as well as how much do they understand of what they need to do to actually, you know, be big, and uh, do they have a realistic um, sort of handle on what that looks like? Mm. You mentioned you mentioned failed before, yeah. and. I, I, I kind of wonder if we need to grow up a little bit in terms of um, appreciating failure as being a really good part of the journey and, and the lessons that come from it. Um, does that is that something that you're conscious of as well when you, you when you meet new founders and, and what sort of history they've had? Yeah, I mean, I don't really look to see if they have failed so they understand what it's like. Um, but at the same time, there's definitely... Um, there's definitely a part of the conversation that happens a lot easier when they have. And I guess the main thing is no one on day one knows what day 50 or day 500 could look like. Um, but it's equally important to say that if this is what I've got on my plan, it could look so different down the line. Um, and <clears throat> being able to sort of pivot and adjust is, is the most important thing. So, you know, really hold closing, really holding the initial plan close to your heart is good but you also have to be able to understand the wider goal and, and you know, pivot as you need to. So I, I think the New Zealand market in general, though, is um, has got that failure thing down a lot better than most because failing once is, doesn't, doesn't really make you a failure. It, it, there's a lot of support um, that that is sort of there to say, try again. Um, so I think in that way, New Zealand market is very, very good for, for entrepreneurs. What's your, what's your deal flow like? Do you have lots of people lining up to come into the Dragon's Den? <laughs> yeah, we try not to make it a Dragon's Den. Um, it's because we've been a part of that and uh, it was quite scary. Um, yeah, so what we do is we, we haven't actively advertised for a, for a pitch yet. So what we've always done is we start off with a team of four and um, once we got that cap capacity up, we'd uh, bid for a couple of projects and when we thought we were close, we'd add to the team. So we've always found the project before we've added to the team. Um, what we've also had is, you know, a lot of our business comes from referrals. So um, our second customer has given us three projects that span over two years. 
Um, and we just went to see him again now and he wants to do some more work with us as well. So once you understand how we work, it, it works really well. Um, there are always complications in development. Um, so one of the ways we try to get around that is we provide a fixed cost quote. So our first couple of projects that we did that on, we, we absolutely took a bath because um, it's very hard for a tech company to work with a founder who's not technical and therefore doesn't really understand um, what you know, a scope change versus a, another change would look like. But at the same time, it was our first couple of clients, so we couldn't go back on our words. So we you know, take a bath and then we sort of adjust and move, move forward with that. So we, we always have a few sort of in the background, but we've also now started working with, I guess, more established businesses to build bigger platforms and bigger projects that we can get better experience for sort of supporting startups as well. Um, but yeah, wouldn't, wouldn't say there's a huge amount, but we've never been short of one. Yeah. Is there a, um, from your own business perspective, is there, a, with a lot of, with a lot of equity, I mentioned that the exit, you, it's really hard to define when that is, if there is, and you know, there's, there's a liquidity at this kind of stage. Is that, that make it hard from a from a revenue business perspective? Is it really about the long game? Yeah, it is. Um, I mean, to be honest, we've we've got a genuine want to be a part of the long game because I think it's important to support it the best you can with what you can offer. So um, we don't claim to be experts in everything. Um, the the in fact, the first sort of document we give someone is a, a quote with a number of hours on it, and we say you can go and t and that actually does all the hard work for the next person that looks at it because it's got the architecture, it's got the flow, it's got everything we've built for it and say so it's going to take this many hours. And uh, we say you can take that to any development firm and, you know, cross-check that we're not just increasing the hours and reducing the price. Um, so at that stage, we've never lost a sort of client to a competitor. We've lost clients because they couldn't fund that, that side of the project. Um, so the long game is really important, but that's what we realised maybe six to 12 months into the businesses. You know, those early stage businesses can't always, um, I guess, pay the bills on time, which means we can't pay our bills on time, um, as well as they, they can't be rushed through the process either. So we've started working with sort of other bigger companies who give us a uh, stronger revenue stream. And um, essentially what we found, again, when we went to COVID was we predominantly work on project basis with the big companies. So when there's no money, the first thing goes on hold other projects. So essentially two days into lockdown, we were we were starting the year with sort of a runway to October without having too many projects. So it got moved up to June. Mm. So we started to revisit that as well and see how we wanted to reduce that risk. So we've now started building software that, that we're going to take to market ourselves as well. And that all sort of evolve, um, revolves around um, a SaaS ERP system that we've been working on for a, for a little while anyway. So we were supposed to launch that in October, but once we had the projects go out, we had some resources, we just put everyone on that same project. So now we have an ERP SaaS system ready to go, and which actually works really well for companies that want to go online as well. So we swapped that out and that can take them online, um, connect them to other marketplaces and things like that as well. I know, I know we're going to have to talk more about COVID. I'm getting really sick of it. Yeah. Avoid it as much as I can. Um, but can we just talk about like um, it might be a little bit of sacrilege to talk about, uh, you know, from a from a startup to work alongside government support. Is there that potential though? Is it the potential for uh, um, the likes of Callahan Innovation and even you know bigger MB, MB stuff to, to really start driving what you're talking about and to work with the 
with the likes of you and your team? Um, yeah, I, I certainly hope so. Um, and I guess one big thing for me was um, coming out of lockdown, there was people who, who genuinely needed help. And then there was people who were genuinely trying to just increase business. And I guess it comes from a desperate, from a spot that everyone was sitting in. Um, there was, there was a lot going on. There was a, you know, some people couldn't open the shop for six weeks or whatever it might be. Um, I told you I was, I was trying to avoid COVID by the way. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's hard to. Um, <laughs> so coming out of it, I definitely saw, um, I guess, poor advice going into the market to, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of, business owners in New Zealand, you know, being a SME market, there's a lot of business owners in New Zealand that has tentatively stayed away from online. Um, and it's because they didn't understand it. And then there was this whole panic to be online. And uh, I don't think necessarily some people engaged them in the fairest way to deliver what they needed. And um, so I think if, if there's a better understanding or a system put in place where, you know, we start looking at industries as opposed to just the individual store. Because, I mean, if you look at, you know, there's, there's a whole lot of cafes and bars now with an app that you can download. And um, that doesn't really make sense because if you look at the number of apps you have on your phone, it's actually quite limited. And the reason Uber Apps is there, uh, Uber Eats is there, is because you don't have to have the McDonald's app or the BK app and all those different, you know, even those, all the small cafe around the corner. You don't have to have those because you're in one marketplace and you find it. So, you know, to charge someone to have a mobile app and then charge them ongoing costs from ordering on that app of the products you you built is, yeah. in my opinion, not not necessarily the right solution for them either. But then we've also got the problem where, you know, Uber Eats is too expensive for for these cuts uh, for these kitchens. But unfortunately, the um, the consumer demand has been set. So even though there was a lot of sort of outcry about, um, you know, it is too expensive. How do we support them? At the end of the day, if you're back at work and it's raining outside and you can't go outside, well, if, if that's the only option you have, that's the one you use. So it's about looking at industries and supporting the industries to be able to reach the technology that they couldn't as individuals. Um, and there should be a process for it. And I think Callahan's probably the best setup to do it. Um, and it'd be interesting if, if we do go down that path. I got slightly lost there. I, I started thinking about food. Um, <laughs> but do you think that there, there's a situation where a whole lot of people got stitched up on these sites, uh, whether it's, you know, WordPress, Magento, those are just people, people so keen to jump into the e-commerce space and a whole lot of uh, unscrupulous developers uh, potentially stitch them up? Is there is there going to be a whole lot of work for, for proper, proper people yeah. to do? Um, hopefully there isn't a whole lot of um, undoing to do. Um, so hopefully they haven't been tied into, you know, excessive terms and things like that, um, which would be quite frustrating. Um, but yeah, there definitely are very different prices floating out there. And, and all you have to do is look at a couple of the um, sort of Instagram ads and the Facebook ads that these companies are pushing out there is, you know, design a beautiful website to um, help your business grow. And say beautiful doesn't really matter because, you know, you might need a beautiful website if you're a design company and you're always on RFPs and they need somewhere to go to but a beautiful website isn't what you need to transact, which is a lot of the customers that we were trying to target with this. Um, and then also there's, I guess, the misinformation out there as well. Like, so everyone thinks you need an app. And if you, know, if you talk to my mom and dad and tell them what, a, what an app is, they think you need it. And um, while you know, someone who's actually run the businesses will say, no, you don't need the McDonald's app. You actually need the Uber Eats app and you need to be in it. 
and how do you get into it without having to do multiple changes inside your system every time something happens? Um, how do you connect to Uber Eats and Minilog at the same time because they're you know, two big platforms that you probably want to have? So all those questions didn't really get answered with what was happening. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, but I, from, from what I can see, there hasn't been a lot of um, terms signed up. So we'll, we'll certainly be um, trying to find the loudest way to say, come talk to us because um, those, those things were made to seem a lot more complicated than it was. Is it sometimes part of the journey? Like if, if I look at how much we've spent, like M2, how much we've spent on development along the way, uh, like when we were one of the first on Android, on iPad, iPhone, spending, yeah. spending so much, it makes my eyes water when we think about uh, just part of it. Like you never know really where what platforms are going to gonna sit, you know, Steve Jobs comes along and wipes off Flash and, you know, then your HTML5. It's just, it's all part of the fun, right? Um, to a certain extent, yes. Like, you know, um, it used to be the mechanic and the dentist that they said, you know, you go on and you don't know what they said, you've got to pay what they ask. Um, and I really don't want the um, IT industry falling into that space. But in, in, in theory, it does sit there. I wouldn't look too far back because the truth is a lot of things has changed, you know, and it, and it does continue to change. So I don't think there's any any sort of value to be gaining thinking, man, 10 years ago I paid that much, so this is now this cheap, yeah. that's just how it is. You know, a camera phone when it first came out was a grand just for having a camera and now it's 99 bucks. So there's, there's, there's changes that happen, so there's no point in sitting on that. But what is important, I think, is to really have a look at your business model and then get an outside, almost get someone who does technology to have a look at your systems and have a look at how you connect. And um, it's really important to get the marketing sort of aspect tied into that as well, because the whole point is customers now get touched at a whole different level of, you know, places. So does your technology as well as your marketing, as well as your consistent message reach it. And um, that that's not easy to do. Um, but, you know, if you get the right people in the room, it's, it's, that's what you need to do. So you need to look outside for help because they're the ones who are constantly staying on top of how the market is evolving, how the chains are evolving. And, um, yeah, I think it's important to find the right people and find the people you can trust and um, take their, their information as, as valid as can. Good advice not to look too far back. It does make me cry sometimes. So I'll just keep looking forward. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably a really basic, uh, silly question, but, uh, you know, you mentioned before all these uh, different prices for e-commerce, beautiful e-commerce sites. What's a, yeah. what's a fair price if I've got nothing? We need we need to start selling selling shoes. Um, but to be honest, if you wanted a website that told someone what your business does, um, you'd be able to find someone in your family that can build your website um, off off a Wix page or something like that. Um, you shouldn't be spending into the thousands on something like that. You might get some advice. You might get some design work done. The design itself is different to the the website itself. Um, but if it's just a basic website, you shouldn't be looking at too much. Um, then if you're looking at, you know, actually selling things online, um, again, there's, there's subscription-based models that you can connect to your ERP system. So um, essentially with our system, what you do is when you have your, all your products in the ERP system, you can then choose, do you want it on um, your own website? And you might have multiple websites. So you might have one that's B2B versus B2C. And you want to push to trade me as well. So being able to push to all those different places is quite important. And you can do that usually with one or two clicks of a button on, a, on the good ERP systems. 
Um, so those are the things we really need to look to. If you even even just a basic transactional website, you know, you shouldn't be spending more than a few thousand. Well, if that. The, the functionality really comes from being able to utilize the total marketplaces. So, you know, when Amazon comes, can you go on it? So eBay, Trade Me, um, all those are called Facebook Marketplace. Because one thing you know for sure is people aren't shopping for, for in, in a place. They're looking everywhere. They're using the internet to check pricing, global pricing, all of that. So you need to be able to make sure that your as many of the places people look at, as well as your competitive, as well as you're agile enough to move as the market moves. It's really interesting. It almost becomes like a false economy not to do that. Like if you imagine all the different platforms posting onto Trade Me, if you're, if you're paying someone to do that or if you're doing that yourself, that's a lot of time to do that manually. Uh, so, yeah. you know, to, to have that as part of the process is really cool. Yeah, and, and that's the really important thing to remember is, you know, unless you have one of the big brands of retail companies in New Zealand, the odds are a very small group of um, loyal customers are just going to your website. So just building a lot of, spending a lot of money or time on your website is almost, um, is a moot point because it's, mm. it's not what's going to create the value. It's creating a system that allows you to firstly, absolutely have your own website, but also to be able to move across the different markets, target different markets. So you might have different brands running at the same time. Um, so one of the things we're looking at right now is you know, we're working with um, one of the one of the liquor companies in terms of how they go to mark, how they go online, and um, you know, it's it's the ability to pull customers in who aren't searching for a liquor brand; it's they're searching for a type of liquor. So, you know, is it easy to have just beers.co.nz, wines and spirits, or whatever it is, and just push customers there from a different place? Um, so, it's it's all about yeah, being able to understand how your customer shops, how often they are online, and then sort of play with play with that to suit your business model. I'm just going to try and think of the question as I'm well, trying to formulate it. It's a really interesting time. Uh, okay, so so talk about marketplaces. Like a lot of people have tried to come up against Trade Me, for instance. Yeah. Um, but we seem to be going through this this period where it's all about supporting local. And then you've got, um, you know, you've got these Facebook pages like Sarah Colcord started up a Facebook group with almost 400,000 people, over 400,000 people probably, but it's all about supporting New Zealand-made products. So you've got this kind of appetite and this momentum there. Do you see the potential um, opportunity for another marketplace that is in that space? I think there's always an opportunity for marketplaces, but taking your question back a little bit, you know, that local message is um, a very sort of mixed message. So it's one of the ones we've heard a lot is eat local. The fact is you can't not eat local because you're gonna buy it and eat it locally. And even if you're talking about a multinational brand, they are responsible for employing people here. So you can't just say, I don't wanna go to their multinational restaurant because it's international. Um, so you gotta sort of layer where the international aspect comes in and what they take out of the market as a result of it. So, you know, keep going back to the, to the Uber Eats because it's been in the market so much it's taking a disproportionate amount of the value that's in that bucket. Mm. And, you know, if you're looking at someone like a restaurant, you know, they, they have competing business models as well because technology you build it once and try to sell it as many times as you can because, you know, there's, there's no fixed cost. While if you're making hamburgers, every hamburger has a fixed cost. So trying to sell more hamburgers at a reduced margin doesn't help a restaurant at all, but it has, you know, changed the market. So when it comes to, you know, support local, it needs to have a look at, at what layer international comes in because we mm. can't just be purely 
um, you know, local everything. Um, but I also think it's important that, and I think this will happen globally anyway, is you take a much stronger stance on companies that do try to um, flex their brand to say that we can we can avoid this um, because that's that's not really fair on on local. And I, you know, during lockdown, we definitely saw um, why local is important. You know, the, the government regardless of your opinion on how it was done and how much was given, it did support the total country and that's what tax, that tax does. So I'd always look at, are they trying to avoid tax and, and is that fair on, on, the, um, on the everyday consumer? Mm. But marketplaces themselves, I think, are the most, um, is the best for the local economies because if you create a marketplace, everyone can jump on there and put their product and service on there. Then it's up to that market to decide, you know, supply and demand to get the price point and everything like that. So it will create, marketplaces will create a better voice for local businesses. It's just making sure that's done in the best way possible. Yeah, so two things. Um, uh, thank you for uh, analyzing and breaking down my question, by the way, <laughs> on the support local. And it's, a, it's a really good point as well, because um, you know, I think there's a lot of confusion around that. People are talking about, um, uh, you know, some criticism as soon as um, McDonald's opened up uh, KFC, uh, people started flooding, and then, and then some people go, you should be supporting local. They are still support, you know, they're still supplied by local farmers, local boats. It's yeah. not cut and dry. Um, but anyway, back to the back to the marketplace side of things. So do you see a world where where there are potentially um, the trade needs in New Zealand? Um, look, trade is just so established in New Zealand, it's, it's very tough to break. Um, and the other thing with New Zealand is it's not the most um, economical market to come into if you're going to distribute goods. You know, so if you take the example, you know, we've got 5 million people stretched over quite a decent set of land, while Singapore has the same population, the same landfill as land, uh, Lake Taupo. So if you look at distribution of stuff, that's, that's, that's very valuable and New Zealand becomes quite expensive, which is, back, which is a part of the reason we have such a strong SME sort of setup is you've got to be a local to really understand the best way to make this work. Um, so for that reason, I think TradeMe's got a good stronghold and I think they're doing quite well. I don't, I don't think they're trying to, you know, warp the system. So, you know, they're, they're doing a good job of servicing the market, saying that there's certainly categories that TradeMe doesn't play in or can't do as well that can create other marketplaces uh, in New Zealand. Um, how exactly that will break down will be interesting, but you know, definitely one thing we saw coming out of um, sort of, sort of lockdown period is the grocery market. So there was a probably not enough small grocery stores, you know, your local um, that was set up to um, that they weren't set up to, to support um, the, the during the lockdown period. And next time, I guess no one no one hopes there's a next time, but ideally you are set up for it because the second part of it is. New Zealand really understood online and online delivery through COVID, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. You know, there's a lot more people still ordering their food to be delivered from countdown. There's a lot more people ordering their wines and beers um, from, from online. So that need has definitely gone up. So to compete now, they need to not only compete with the big box stores that had the reins for six weeks by default, they actually have to compete with them on a completely different level as well. Mm. So yeah, the, those, the, that's where the marketplaces can bring those small small sort of players into the fray. I feel like I'm throwing a bunch of really random and coherent questions at you. Uh, so in that in that vein, um, have you seen have you seen Keanu, Keanu West's new uh, e-commerce site or the makings of it? It's about about to be launched. No, well, was oh. it? I haven't, unfortunately. 
Um, no, well, it's part of the Yeezy brand. It's, uh, it, it's great. It's, it's so cool um, that, you know, you're flicking through um, uh, items of clothing. They kind of move and blow in the breeze as you're, as you're circling through. And then the, you, you can have avatars that come out and we'll wear them. It's crazy. It looks really cool. And then there's also, I think they were playing with concept that if you, if you don't empty your cart and it will go through with the transaction, then someone comes out of the screen. And originally it was going to be like a buy or buy thing. They kind of tone that back and someone comes out and, and wipes your screen. So it's some real interesting there and I'm really playing, playing with it. But the excitement around that actually uh, increased the share price over the last couple of days as well. So, um, really interesting that kind of connection between the e-commerce world and the overall business thing, and even just without it being launched yet. Yeah, it's um, so that's where technology has a second play at it as well. So this technology that makes it incredibly functional and you know easy to reach and easy to get hold of, then technology can make stuff really cool as well. So that's mm. you know that's that's really um, adding a factor to it that you know gets a whole lot of eyeballs there, and 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 it's done its job really well. Um, a really good example was. Um, in October, we were in Sri Lanka to, um, to, with the team. And one morning, it was about two months short of the election. One morning, everyone's reading their paper through the phone. And I don't mean they're reading the paper on the phone app. They were using a QR code to have a look at it. And essentially, one of the um, parties had put a, um, uh, AI clip into it. So when you scan that space, a TV popped out of your screen and then the, um, the minister was going to talk about what he's going to do. And, you know, that's the only thing that everyone was talking about for the next three days. Um, and you can imagine something like that is hard to do for such a small time period. Like the amount of work you have to do for such a small time period is, is expensive. But then you've got 22 million people there, so you paid off. So you come back to places, things like that in New Zealand. And, you know, we've explored the opportunity of doing things like um, virtual tours of houses. So instead of trying to get to the two open homes you can between 10 and 12, which is when all the open homes are, how about you see 30 of them, you know, over the week, you put your VR goggles on or something like that. And you see it, and though the technology is available, though it's possible, that to be able to roll it out in the scale of New Zealand is, is very, very hard. So, um, need to find uh, we we do need to find a way of making that more achievable um, without having the volume first. So that again is where we need to look at partnering with international companies that have it, as opposed to saying we can do it. Mm. Uh, because the benefit of that is is wider for the the wider industries. Just on VR for a moment. Because uh, I've been waiting for it since the launch. I'm probably uh, uh, showing my age, but I've been waiting for VR since the launch. Oh, man, um, um, what's the hurdle? What's the holdup? I, I would have thought if anything, COVID would have pushed us over into that. Like we're doing virtual everything now. Yeah, I mean, the reality is it's it's content creation. Um, so even you know sports events to do it, um, you know, with the full experience is a completely different. It's just essentially a refit. Um, so I imagine sporting outfits are probably spending a little bit less money on, on broadcasting at the moment. Um, and even movies and all of that. It's just the content is very, very expensive. Um, I did expect sort of the big sort of movie brands to come out with more options. Mm. Um, but then it also comes down to, you know, it's like when the 3D TVs came out, people paid a lot more money for it and mm. um, had the big things set up and there was no content for it. So I think there's, there's a potential fear there of, the chicken of the egg situation because we've already in the same industry had such a such a um, sort of fall over recently, um, but it, it is yeah it's a cost of content and I'm I'm sure there'll be a solution for it soon because it's um, IT's not 
no one patents it anymore anyway. It's, it's too hard to, you know, reverse engineer and you change one thing over there and it's no longer paint. It's, it's not worth fighting the patent fight on most tech builds. Mm. So I'm sure there'll be something coming out soon that'll, that'll open it up, hopefully. You Speaking of random questions, but are you much of a gamer? I was, no, I've never owned a gaming console except my Atari 65, I think it was, that my uncle bought from New Zealand to Sri Lanka when I was um, five or six years old. Is the, it? That's, that's the only gaming console I've had, but um, there's definitely a lot of, um, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the industry is definitely taking off and the want to work with it. And gaming falls sort of into the AI space as well in terms of developers, so um, hmm. the development skill. So, yeah, I, I don't have a lot of experience in it, but I definitely know that, I'll be putting my hand into something soon without knowing what I'm doing and then get someone smarter than me to tell me what to do. Cause um, it's definitely an important part of it. It feels, it feels like there's some sort of convergence, you know, you're talking about content uh, generation, but it feels like uh, they're starting to become this, like I'm really obsessed with the last of us, uh, which came out a few years ago and then recently the last of us too. Um, but it's incredible. It's such a cinematic storytelling experience um, as a game. And it kind of feels like, uh, those things are going to merge. Like you've got uh, even gaming engines being used for uh, uh, for movies. I wonder if there's going to be just a big mash of stuff coming together. Yeah, I, I think um, particularly with AI and you know the the 360 experience, all of that, um, the the cinema industry will have to do a lot of it. Mm. Um, and I guess the, the sort of the breakdown there now is though. It's not big, you know, it's not the Avatar or the Titanic or those big movie names coming out anymore. It's a whole other series on Netflix. Mm. So, you know, you, you used to, you, because the need is to uh, binge content, you can't build high quality content and get them to pay, you know, $25 to go see the movie. You've got to fit it into a $9.95 a month budget to see as many things as you like. So there's definitely um, something that came out of the sort of streaming services. Everyone had to have a look at their, look at their pricing. And so I think... It'll, it'll happen at some point because, you know, with all these new players coming on board, um, someone will take the risk and run with it and, and, and it'll happen. But, yeah, the, the, the streaming content part definitely slowed it down a bit. Mm. Speaking of Netflix, and, and maybe maybe this will get, get us on track, part of a, a conversation about business and equity. I often think about the whole Boxster um, thing as well because they had the idea um, for streaming for Netflix did, you know, they were started to put out the platform. Um, but I think one of the CEOs actually cut off, um, you know, uh, late fees um, for, for tapes and, and, you know, they were trying to push people on, but um, they lost a whole lot of money in the meantime and they just couldn't get it go through. Going through. And then in the, in, in the meantime, Netflix came up and became a thing. Um, I think there are, at a time like this, are there lessons still, uh, like, are you looking at a whole lot of sectors and industries and, and seeing seeing kind of the blockbuster Netflix thing playing out potentially? Um, I think Netflix has done a very good job of not just disrupting but finding ways to maintain their advantage. So they didn't just build some software and put a whole lot of stuff onto it. They started building the content as well. And so they created what went on their new sort of market. Um, so I think they've done a good job of it. Um, but there is definitely, um, there was a point at which, you know, so if we take, again, I keep going back to Uber, but, you know, they created something back in the day that really disrupted the the taxi industry. And because it was such a big disruption, it ran away with it. And in the next few years, no one was, everyone's trying to catch up to them on the technology, but then they were so far ahead as a brand. So 
that was really good for the industry at the time, but then what happens two or three years down the line is they're actually operating as a monopoly globally. So they've got the lion's share of, of everything as, as they go on. But what they found was as they got to Asia, more people had reverse engineered the app and you couldn't really do too much about it. Um, and you know, there's multiple scenarios of how Uber operates inside a lot of the Asian markets. Um, some of them, they went and bought them out. Some of them, they just put money into it and let the, the brand there stick around. Um, so there's definitely industries to be able to look at. And I think, the, I think I said this earlier, but the key thing to have a look at is we, we can't have software being the driver of the business model. The software needs to support the businesses operate in a, in a, good, in, in a sustainable business model. So you, know, you can't have a piece of software taking such a big chunk of the, the, the purse that's available when the work going into it is the driver's car, it's the driver's time, the driver's got to, you know, because they're a contractor has not real any benefits of, you know, benefits similar to working for someone else. You know, you've got to look at um, KiwiSaver, for example, um, health, health benefits and things like that. They all have to fund that all themselves as well as have a big chunk go out. So I think there's a lot of industries that will get disrupted by this. And I think COVID will add more to it because that's where the local layer really comes in. So it's taking 30% of a transaction that's 100% happened here with a piece of technology that mm. isn't patented, isn't actually that probably that difficult to um, reverse engineer. Is that worthwhile? Um, so those are the sort of industries I think that will get disrupted, which is, which will be interesting to see because you can't have 50 different things either because there is a value added from being able to use the same app when you jump from New Zealand to Australia to, you know, Asia, wherever you go. But at the same time, we can't have that being taken away and no taxes being paid on that at the same time. Yeah. Do you think, do you think that is, that is a fuel for the, this disruption? Is it like the public going, screw this. I'm not going to be part of something that, you know, it takes such a big part of the pie um, that uh, avoids tax. Is that where it comes from? Does it? Is it? Is it is I have it... two two frames of thought on that. Um, look, first of all, the consumers, um, yeah, they they definitely are up in arms about it. Um, but what they didn't realise is, you know, prices have actually progressively gone up as a part of being a part of this as well. So, you know. If you look at your mum and dad fish and chip shop, they might be doing Uber Eats. If you look at the menu price versus the price in store, it's different. So, you know, they haven't done it cheaper. They've just charged someone, you know, they've just put your price up. So as a consumer, we should be a little bit pissed off as well because the price has gone up and you told us it's, you know, a delivery. Um, then at the same time, you can't have consumers being upset without a solution. So there, there needs to be... Um, a process by which industries can approach technology without one person taking the brunt on the whole thing and then hopefully, you know, catching on and making a business out of it. Because you actually, if you see what's happened with these big businesses, that's the last thing you want to happen because they run away with it. So, you know, technology is sort of, um, you've got to make it more available in New Zealand and not just with saying be online or whatever it might be, but it's looking at the industries, it's looking how the industry's consumer behaves, where do they shop? How do they look at things? And supporting technology to, and building supporting technology to help New Zealand businesses, those SMEs that we're worried about, compete in those without having to, you know, put aside three years of revenue to pay off an ERP system that, that allows them to do it or a website that allows them to operate like that. What do you think, in, in terms of, in, in a wider kind of sense, where do you think uh, there are green shoots of opportunities uh, in the future? The New Zealand economy, in the technology space, or in general? In general, 
General? Mm -hmm. Well, in general, I think um, we need to come up with a more sustainable plan to have more consumers in the country every day than tourists coming through, because obviously that's, that's going to become more and more at risk. Um, so, you know, what can we do to have a bigger population that helps the revenue go around? At the same time, how do we make sure that the people coming in don't go straight to Auckland, Wellington or Christchurch? Because, you know, we, we can't keep adding the strain there. So it's about looking at, you know, specific industries. So do we want to build a Silicon Valley in New Zealand where, you know, developers from all around the world come? And so we bring that um, knowledge that we're talking about, we bring them to, um, I don't know, in, in somewhere nice and sunny, over in Napier or something like that. And then you can create events where VCs from overseas comes once to one place and there's an event they come to. So there's the exposure for those brands, there's exposure for the startups. Um, you know, it's just, we need to try to start building um, communities around needs. So, and, and that's, that's, I think, we're the most interesting one. That's interesting. If you had said that last year, I would have presumed that you'd been drinking too much kombucha or something. Um, it's quite conceivable now that you would have a lot of eyes are on us and you do have VCs actually thinking about moving here. And it's not just like buying a bunker in Queenstown, but actually moving here and being yep. part of the economy. Yeah, absolutely. And um, New Zealand is very desirable for a number of reasons because we're always a nice guy in everything, right? And, and that's good. And um, we, we've got the eyes of the world through, you know, the All Blacks and the Black Caps and all that. You know, people know who New Zealand are, even though they probably don't do a justified amount of business with the country or back and forth. Um, it could definitely could be a lot better. So it's sort of like we've done a really good job of getting our brand out there, um, that, but then potentially um, falling over and making the most of it. Now, it's not definitely not a matter of, you know, opening the gates and letting everyone in. It, it needs to be um, targeted. It needs to make sure that it's supporting the economy, adding to the economy. But the longer we try to operate with 5 million people, the, the, the harder it's going to be on all our local businesses. And, um, you know, unless you look at some countries in Europe that have done that really well with those populations, you know, their taxes and things are so high that everyone can survive on, on, on what you make as minimum wage and things like that. But, you know, New Zealand business can't really justify the minimum, minimum wage going up significantly at this point either. So, yeah, we need, we need more feet on the ground, but not, not in Auckland, Wellington at the moment, and then spread it out. Do you, do you, get, the, do you get the feeling that there is going to be more, uh, more capital and that, and that there is going to be, that's a kind of smarter capital as well. You're talking about, um, you know, before there was this expectation that, um, startups have like this three-year uh, plan and uh, numbers and all that. But do you think that going like, overseas investors have a totally different uh, kind of mindset in terms of um, you know uh, valuation and then what they ask of founders to provide them? Do you think that will change uh, things a little bit? That will, um, will open things up? Yeah, I, I guess what we, we we call it silly money. I don't think we have enough investors in New Zealand with silly money, and that sounds really bad. But you know. There are investors in America and the UK that will give take a take a very short thought ten grand punt on a startup or a hundred grand punt on a startup, and unfortunately those investments are made by the people who have made it big. You know they'll go to those events and, and throw money around because that's the support they got back in their day. Mm. And they're um, kind of looking for the outlier as well, right? You know, yeah. The thing that will be the I hate to do a grant cut on, but the ten x, you know. Yeah, and, um, and, and you know, that's, that's what people should be looking for. And, and when you have an investment market that is very um, sort of structured, it's very risk averse as well. And, and definitely there are 
investors who should be risk averse or you know risk balanced and all that. But we also need some people to sort of push these little startups along that you know get better, better exposure, uh, better understanding, um, better experience from you know working with people from other markets as well. So there is, like I said, the experience part right at the start. We can change that by opening up certain sort of industries over here and bringing that experience over here, facilitating. Um, you know, for them to, you know, do well in, a, in another part of the country and then use our talent to go and learn from them. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's something that we really need to work on to get that experience up, particularly in the IT space. You, you gave a lot of insight earlier on where you were talking about having, you know, it's important for startups to have an understanding of addressable market and that kind of thing. Is there any other advice that you would give uh, for pitching, you know? Is it about the... Taking people on a journey, story. Um, I think the main things would be um, take everyone's advice, but take it equally. Like you know, there could be an incredibly experienced business person that tells you something, and it, it could come across negative. But don't let that be the decision maker. At the same time, you know, don't let your um, closest friends and relatives telling you that's such a great idea be the reason you go after it either. Um, you yourself need to be passionately um, aware of the of the sort of road bombs that are going to come, but actually want what's on the other side as well. Because um, it's it's never an easy journey, and um, you know so many people fail and never fail, restart again, um, and it can be quite uh, it can take quite a toll on you as well. So you've got to really prepare yourself, and that end goal isn't necessarily you know having a billion dollar business. The end goal might be, you know, freedom of life in another 10 years time in terms of how you can spend time with your family and all those things. So if you have a good enough reason why, I think that's that's the main reason. Just some other advice, some entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial advice. Uh, there'll be a lot of really clever people, right, who are losing, um, and it's, that's probably going to be rolling out for a while, but um, losing corporate jobs, going out into a, you know, in, into a blank canvas of opportunity. Um, right? And there, there might be some more startup coming out of that environment. So as I say, some really clever people that um, have maybe been sitting on an idea. Have you got any advice for how you take that, run with it, and start building something about that, around that? Um, I guess there's two parts to that. If I mean, it always comes down to the personal situation. Um, some people like to um, throw the Hail Mary when they've got nothing. And, you know, that, that could be tough. Um, but at the same time, there's definitely opportunity out there in the market. And um, one thing we do know is the opportunity in the market right now, the whole world's looking for these solutions because the whole, the whole world's got economies that have just frozen and then there's people coming out of trouble. Um, and they want to be able to make those dollars in the country go around. So there's, there's definitely things to be addressed, but I think um, the most important thing is also finding a way to deal with the scenario more and more often, which is there can be entire industries that disappear. So, you know, um, everything from driverless cars to automation and factories, all those things, it can put entire workforces out. And, and that's gonna happen more uh, because of the evolution of technology as well as um, things like that's just happened. So we've got to find a better way to, um, you know, support those people through the tougher times. And that again comes back into a local economy where, you know, if the local economy owns the dollar that's going around or the more of it as possible, 
the more they can flex in the parts that are doing well to support the parts that aren't doing so well. Mm. And um, it's, it's building sort of workforces that aren't necessarily just a occupation or whatever it might be. It might be a, a marketplace for jobs for people who want to top up the welfare for, you know, because they're going through a tough time in the last six months, or whatever those things might look like. Um, so I think if we start with how do we how do we roll the dollars around? So there's still people with money in the country and there's, you know, people that, that may not, but if we keep that dollar going is the most important thing. So it's important to make sure that we encourage that. And, and there's be plenty of options coming up for that, I'm sure. Are you interested in politics, by the way? <laughs> um, I, I am, yep. I've um, been best not to talk about it at the dinner table is probably what I've been talking about. So, <laughs> I, um, yeah, no, I mean, politics is important to everyone, right? So, um, obviously, this was already going to be a really interesting year, being, being an election year in New Zealand and in the States. Um, and, yeah, we've made it a whole lot more interesting in the last three or four months, so it should be interesting. Um, there's been a lot of talk about the lack of uh, SME representation in uh, in the uh, our government at the moment would it, would you consider giving it a shot would i consider what sorry getting into politics no giving some <laughs> giving some sm uh, small small business uh, yeah. representation i don't think i'll ever consider getting into politics but i'd certainly like to um get more opinions out there there's two things there's there's a lot of people that have opinions that don't vote so you know i think that's really important to change everyone's got to vote especially after the year we've had you know if we don't have the best turnout at the polls that we have, then you know they should, everyone's Facebook should be shut off if you don't vote. You don't get a voice uh, because that's that just happens too often. Um, but I do think that um, before we get to a party stage, you know people need to start considering the odds are we're going to have a coalition government. What does that coalition look like? What's that second party look like? And is that second party going to be able to give the best support to the the party in power? Um, and I think that's that's a place where we fall over quite often is um, you've got to make a deal with the devil to, to get the get the crown. So um, is that the best way that, you know, for, for New Zealand moving forward? But I think in general, New Zealand's quite good because we have Labour and National that are, you know, centre-left and centre-right. And it's swinging from side to side has worked well for New Zealand for the majority of the time. And we've had some great leader, leaders on both sides of it. Um, so... Coming into this election, I, I just really think it's important that we look at those parties that will support Labour or National to get that coalition ticket and what are they bringing to the table and, and how are they thinking? Are they thinking about the economy? Are they thinking about um, uh, the environment? All those things are important, but with what weighting? So, yeah, this, that's why I think is the most important thing. Brilliant. Brilliant. All right. So leaving the dinner party uh, without any sort of argument, that's good. One last yeah. question. One last question, a question about questions. Uh, for my next interview with another with another business leader, is there is there a question that you'd like to slip in there? Um, yeah, I, I think the question would be, um, we talk about SMEs a lot, you know, are we supporting SMEs? Um, and I think one needs to come out of that is not just SMEs versus corporates versus um, multinational, what it might look like, because like, like we mentioned before, all of those serve their purpose. Um, we need to have a look at what's creating the gap. So, you know, how do we support industries to be able to, how, how do we support industries so that SMEs, medium business and large business can operate in there without losing the fight on day one because it's a multinational that came in with millions of dollars and, and everything to spend. How do we make sure the SMEs can 
stay on board there. And, you know, we probably let that slide for too long is what we realized during lockdown. Um, but it's important to start addressing that now because it's important for everyone to stay, stay, stay alive in that space. That was a really good point. What's, how, do I, how do I ask that question? I have no idea. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, just, just technology for yeah. industry. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that is, it's a very good point though. I just want to, you're talking about regulation in that sense. Um, do you think that sometimes we've kind of regulated ourselves into a lack of competitive uh, ability? And I'm so I'm talking about, I'm coming from the media perspective, right? But, you know, the ComCom, com, 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 as it's affectionately known within the within this area, but, you know, it stops the likes of stuff in NZME and, uh, you know, stopping kind of this media monopoly here. But meanwhile, you've got Facebook and you've got uh, Google, um, Taking a lion's share of uh, of advertising revenue, so it's like, you know, can we be regulated too much as well? Um, so I was, yeah, probably wasn't speaking too much about regulation because, uh, yeah, too much regulation is is not good, especially when there's a there's a group of people trying to regulate a market they know nothing about, and they bring in experts who have everything to lose. And therefore, the information that gets sorted in the middle is not what actually needs to come out to the market. It's, it's, it doesn't get regulated in the fairest way all the time. Um, so I think we need to have a look. We need to bring in experts from overseas for that space because, you know, if you, if you ask the business leaders of an industry what the problem is and, you know, they, they kind of stick to what's going to support them. Um, yeah, and, and the ComCom, again, I think again, needs understanding of the markets they're trying to, to regulate more, um, as, especially as things are evolving. So, you know, um, technology plays such a big part in media now. Do they have a scope and an understanding of what impact that has on stuff and is in need to be able to compete and to, you know, carry a voice? Um, so it's, it's not that it needs to regulate. It's more that there needs to be resources that they can pull on. So um is, is it um it's not saying everyone has to use the same technology but is there the opportunity to you know share um you know open open source coding for for businesses and industries that the government pays for so you can pull out of that that set and on day one have a platform that operates as well as the big company that just came in from the state so they can reach the customer the same way mm. um so that's that's what i think needs to be looked at more um definitely could do with less regulation i think mm. That's very cool. No, I really appreciate that. All right, one last one last question because I got I feel like we've got to wrap it up in a really positive yeah. way. The future is bright. There are silver linings, all that sort of stuff. But can you give us can you give us some glimmer of optimism about the future? Um, I think we will go through some really good changes out of all of this as well. And, um, you know, one of the things I can hopefully immediately see is just family time, you know, being able to work from home when you wanted to and adjusting over those six to eight weeks, no one was at their desk at eight o'clock and the world did not end. So, you know, hopefully we take the learnings from that and give ourselves more of a, a balance, a balance into how everything works around us. And I think that's when the best ideas come as well. So um, I think there'll be a lot of, disruption that comes out of New Zealand and um, I'm hoping that it'll disrupt the rest of the markets as well because we should be able to take what we do here and take it to the world better than ever before because what we're saying is we want to keep it local so if we create infrastructure and software and, and, and technology around that and being one of the first countries to kind of be on the other side of this as well we should be ready to pounce on that so 
yeah, it will just be really important that anyone looking to do something right now, if you can adjust now to be um, attractive to, to the wider markets, do it because they're going to, everyone wants to be like New Zealand right now. So we should, we should model that on that.